what it all comes down to. This is music. This is mayhem. This is a high voltage rock and roll podcast especially for you. Don't think because you haven't heard of us that we didn't exist. We've been here all along like a spirit roaming the night, seldom stopping to rest. Our path has been marked by the bolted skull and bones, smashed guitars, and starred stages across the world. Welcome to the full-on church of rock and roll. This is only the beginning. So we just kind of go into conversation, John. I mean, it's very loosely based. We have Damien with us, okay. and we're going to have Keelan coming in later. Um, he's out okay. and about, so cool. All right, good. And you just roll on different topics or whatever? Yeah, dude. It's just it's basically us talking, so, you know? Okay. So I'm going to go. I'm going to start in three, two, one, and say welcome, everyone. We are here. We are back, and we are with someone that literally means the world to me. I've known forever, and... I can't tell you the impact this person has had on my life, and it's an honor to say welcome to the full-on podcast, John Bush. What's up, Tim? How are you? I'm good, brother. I almost flaked on you today, but uh, we, we made it happen, and I'm so sorry. But uh, hey, I'm good. I'm up here in, uh, in lovely Big Bear where uh, I have a my wife and I have a place up here. We bought it about six years back, and um, it's always nice to come up here and get away from the, the mania that is L.A. and uh, breathe in some air that's maybe slightly tainted by fires, but still a little fresher than normal here. And, yeah. uh, it's always good. So, so what, all good. What have you been up to? I mean, have you have you been able to watch any sports, you know? Um, you know, I've been trying to get uh, into – well, I'm a huge NBA fan. I'm a big uh, Celtics fan, as a lot of people know about me. And um, so I've been trying to watch a lot of the, the playoff games. Uh, obviously, it's all weird, just like everything is in conjunction with the pandemic. And sports is no exception where you have these these games and these, these playoffs with the NHL and the NBA and pretty soon the MLB and, um, you know, all these games where no one's attending and it's, it's bizarre. And, um, you know, it, but they're trying to make it happen and, kudos to them and, and all the all the corporations there as far as you know the, 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 the baseball and basketball and hockey and, and now football and, and they're trying to get it going and I think it's important for people to be able to still watch sports they love and escape from you know the insanity that's kind of been happening over the last seven months and um, and get into something that people are real passionate about but same with music except for you just can't go to see any shows yet with music or not too many if there are at all um we actually went to an Oktoberfest up here in big bear and um there was a live band playing and it was very spread out not too many people but a band was playing i mean i mean there was just some cover band playing like stray cat songs or something but it was something like live music live music did did you really appreciate it like you're like shit this is something i forgot what this feeling was to watch someone play in this live setting like this yeah, absolutely. You know, it was cool. The, the band was good, and they were and they were rocking out, and it sounded great. Just something live, and I was envious, actually. And um, you know, I think that's 
we need we need music. We need uh, that's one of the reasons with Armored Saint, you know, there was no hesitation to postpone putting our record out because um, it makes sense to be able to hear music when you can't even go see it at all live. So the last thing we want to do is say, well, we're not going to put out music and you can't see us perform. So here's nothing. Uh, that makes no sense at all. So that's one of the reasons we were still adamant about uh, putting our record out, which comes out next month. But um, yeah, yeah, I want to go to shows too. You know, not only do I want to play, but I want to go to gigs and go to shows and um, go to sporting events and, you know, I usually go to a few Dodger games, and our, uh, we have season tickets to the Kings, although they are terrible this year. But, um, so, you know, it, it's a drag to not be able to do these things. And um, it's, I don't know, it's just, I guess it's just the way we are right now. And I'm hoping that it's just going to be temporary and we'll, we'll get back to, to life. You, you mentioned something, a couple of things that I want to drop back into. First of all, let's talk about the new album really quick. Um, punching the sky that comes out on metal blade. When does that come out? Like October 23rd or that's correct. Yep. October 23rd. And you, the, the title track, I guess it's the title track that you sent me. Like what, what is that about? Cause those lyrics were so great and it's so inspiring right now. And just the term punching the sky, where does that come from to be the album? Well, title? it's the first, it's the first lyric of the, uh, of the, of the album because it's the first lyric of the song standing on the shoulders of giants. That's the actual title of the song. And that's the, um, the first track. And um, it's when we wrote that song, it was kind of we like I liked the title. I thought it was cool. It was, it was you know Isaac Newton I think said it you know years ago when he was probably doing some kind of uh, scientific uh, evaluation in, in life and he's a very smart guy obviously. And um, I like the theory that you're standing on 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 such a high level that you're able to kind of scan life you know this is very metaphoric but um and you can see everything around you and it gives you better perspective on life and um and so uh you know it, it kind of starts off with the, with the verses about you know getting up and, and kind of dealing with whatever grind people have and, and then whatever you can to to try to find people and, and circumstances that inspire you and the things that kind of motivate you to, to put you at a higher level hence on the shoulder of a giant that's a very like a super high level and that could be a mountain or it could be um you know a building or anything it was a trip we made this video we just finished it came out wednesday and um and we went through a couple different processes in the video um and the first draft was not very good but we we were done with a director who's in romania so we had a lot of kind of we had a little bit of a uh, language barrier as well as just the, the gap of distance and um and then we kind of told him like no we, we we want you to go this route and then in the end he ended up doing it where he he um the way he edited it it just so happened to kind of coincide with a lot of the things that are happening with nature right now in particular out here in the west with all the fires and then it became this kind of weird thing that made the song feel completely have a different topic than it did even when I originally thought about what I wanted to write about. So yeah. it's a trip how that happens um, with music and songs and lyrics. And I really get fired up about that because sometimes I'll have a, a general idea and then all of a sudden time goes by and something will happen and it'll trigger the song to mean something else. So that's kind of what's happened with that song right now. So it's kind of had this nature versus 
you know, industry kind of philosophy to it. And um, that's the first lyric of the song, the, the first song. And um, it's the longest song. It's seven minutes. And Joey was saying, I think we should open the record with that. And I, I was saying, really, you know, it's long and longest song. And, but in the end, we, we said, yeah, it just seemed to be the right song for the, for the being the first song on the record. So it's such a nice tone. And um, it, it is a real kind of majestic type of song. And, you know, we, Armored Saint fans know we like writing stuff like that. Not everything, of course, but but we, we certainly like having songs like that on records. We it goes all the way back to you know something like Aftermath, which is on Delirious Nomad, and mm. even on the way, which is kind of a majestic, kind of not really a ballad, but had that kind of same feeling. And, um, you know, and that was on our first EP in '83. So uh, you know, we, we like writing songs like that because I feel like we can pull it off, and and when when it happens, it, it's a nice feeling so um that's the first song and second video but um this is all happening before the record comes out this is i guess the new way to market and especially when you can't play videos are real real pivotal because it's something people can can view and um and it's the beauty of technology one of the great things about it is that you can do these things for a lot less money than you used to be able to do with the same quality yeah the quality is insane and the and the, the price tag is a lot less, so that's awesome. Yeah. So, did you record the album? I know you obviously did the video during quarantine. Did you record the the album during quarantine? And was that a different experience? Obviously. Well, we were lucky this time. I would saying sometimes have some some bad luck through the years, but on this particular occasion, we had some pretty good luck because we were able to um, give the masters, or I mean, give the give the final recordings to Jay Rustin who mixed it. Um, to, to start mixing it right when the quarantine, you know, the major quarantine happened here in the U.S. So um, there was no more need to go to a studio and work together with various people, whether it's engineers or band members. We were done. We were actually done recording. So so he just took it and, and he was on his own and, and did, the, you know, did the mixing. And it was, uh, it was a perfect scenario for us. So we were lucky this time. So let, let's get back to, to your beginning because you mentioned you're a Celtics fan and you're originally from L.A. So how do you become a, at that time? You know what I mean? Was it the 76 Celtics? Was it the 86 Celtics? What was it? It was, it was actually the 84 series that it got me back into basketball because I just really got out of sports for a while when I really got head strong into music, probably into high school and, uh, and, and and shortly after high school is when I was just really into music and kind of out of sports. I played sports when I was a kid. Um, you know, I, I played baseball, basketball, football. I was, I was very into it as a, as a you know as an early teen and and between ages of like eight and twelve. You know, that's when I played little league and did all those things and um, and I loved it and I still love it, but there was a time when I just got really into music and kind of got out of sports, especially watching professional sports probably. And then when I got back into it was that series against the Lakers, the championship series and why I didn't follow the Lakers and Magic Johnson is probably bizarre, but I think I like Larry Bird. All of a sudden I was like, this dude is rad. And I don't know. I just kind of gravitated to him. So that's when I gravitated to the Celtics. So um, in those years, and when it comes to NBA basketball, I mean, Arguably, the Boston LA series were were just so awesome. You know, they played in the finals like three times or four times, and um, and they were always just classic rivalries. And um, it was some of the best time in the NBA ever. I mean, the 
the nineties with Jordan was pretty awesome, of course, too. But um, but nobody really <laughs> nobody really rivaled the, the Bulls. They were just dominating everybody for the most part. Well, he had to, in the eighties. He had to wait until he had to wait until all the Pistons were gone, until the Celtics were gone and this retired. True. He really this did. It's true. So no, yeah, it's true, completely true. Because um, you know those eight. That's how it is. It's like you have to get through the teams to get to the top. You know, mm-hmm. kind of like any competitive world, and um, and that, that's very true. Like uh, you know, he um, he had to get past the Pistons, like you said. And the Pistons had to get past the Celtics, mm-hmm. you know, and it was the Celtics and Sixers that were always battling in the eighties, especially in the early part of the eighties. And, um, Lakers kind of, they, they had some teams they had to battle too, but they pretty much dominated the West. They had a couple of years that they lost to Houston. Um, and, and those are the years Houston went to the finals and Boston beat them twice actually. But, well, yeah. um, I, I still say yeah, that 85, 86 Celtics team is the greatest NBA team ever. Um, I think they yeah. could still beat any team today. I really do, fundamental wise. I mean, and they were deep. They had Bill Walton on that bench too. You know what I mean? Like, that yeah, was a I know. Deep team. I know. So. They were they were deep. They were some deep teams there, you know. And the um, and you know it's a shame because there's a couple tragedies that happened to Boston. The mm-hmm. Eagles non-biased died. He never even put on a jersey. And then um, then in the early '90s, Reggie Lewis died. Yeah. Um, and and he was becoming like a major star, and he died and. That was a big drag. So, um, you know, and those guys probably would have prolonged people like Bird and Mikhail's, um career because they would have gotten more minutes, and, and those guys would have gotten less minutes and maybe played longer. But, um, yeah, you know, basketball in the 80s was it was just amazing. And the 70s basketball was there, but it didn't have the kind of the impact. And the 80s just catapulted it to the, to the world stage kind of, and then Jordan just <laughs> took it from there. And then Kobe and Shaq took it from there. And, um, you know, and then, you know, hey, the Warriors brought basketball to a whole nother level, which is really cool. And LeBron James, for sure. You know, and that, there was an amazing game last night. I was walking around the town here in Big Bear. I, we weren't watching the game because we were out at the Oktoberfest. But um, I, walked, I saw the bar that had the TV on, and I was like, oh, there's 20 seconds left in the game. Oh, Denver might win. I was like, whoa. And then the guy, Anthony Davis, said this game when he shot. I was like, oh, my God. So the Lakers, they got a little magic. I don't think anyone's going to beat the Lakers. They look pretty dominant. Well, I mean, that's what and Damien's here, and Damien's a huge, massive Lakers fan. I mean, massive. Yeah. And I'm sure Damien last night was very exciting for you. Yeah, I mean, I think the Denver Nuggets are such a great team that, you know, obviously they took out the Clippers, but um, I think that the Lakers might have, you know, been feeling good about their win, and, and even though they know they're not a team to, you know, mess with leads, I think that Denver, especially uh, Jokic, is is just, you know, he kind of stepped up. And then I think that um, Anthony Davis hit that huge shot, which is great. And he, you know, he closed that quarter. It was almost like uh, Nikola Jokic and uh, Anthony Davis going one-on-one. It was like um, a 70s, 80s minutes. battle. Yeah, it was, it. it was awesome. And it was really good to see um, Anthony Davis step up in that moment because, you know, a lot of people have their eyes on LeBron James. And, um, yeah. And so, yeah, it was really... It was it was awesome because you know being a huge Laker fan with the with the Mamba jerseys on it's like I I was like you can't lose in those jerseys and I was I was just like you know I know it's something it's kind of silly to even say but it just was so great that they you know won in that fashion and um, like I said Denver's a a great team um, but like you said I think that the Lakers are just you know 
a little bit more, have a little bit more right now. Well, you guys both better get yeah. used to it because the Cavs are coming. 22, <laughs> 23 champs. They yeah, are. he says Colin Sexton's coming. That's the future. They, they just need a wing that can defend and hit the J. That's all they need. That's funny. Well, that was a follow-away three-pointer that he hit, too, last night. Was like, yeah, oh, and he actually hit oh one um, with three minutes left. He hit one in the same area. So, I mean, I once he took that shot, I was like, oh, it's going in. You know, like... And I'm glad that he said that's those are the shots I want to take, and that's like the moment because I've been waiting with waiting for that with Anthony Davis because I feel like this is well, it's his, his team, team you yeah. know, and like and going into the future, yeah. he's gonna take the reins. And I just I was really excited that he like you know not only said that but stepped up and hit that shot because it's one thing to say, you know, that you want you want those shots, someone like Paul George or something, but you know you gotta step up and make them so. Well, Paul George did not hit no shots. Yeah, he was hitting the back of the side of the backboard. (laughs) Yeah. I know. The Clippers just looked like they were done with the bubble. They were like, okay, let's go home. You you got got to fire Doc. You have to. Yeah, there was no adjustments. It was amazing that Denver came back two series three to one. That's why it's going to be – I mean, if they won last night, they might have had a slight chance. I still never gave them a chance, but I think that was a dagger right there. But – you know, kudos to that. They're a small market team. I always think it's cool the small market teams that are able to, to you know, have a great run and, and be good. And, you know, they have a couple stars on their, in, their, in their future. And, you know, Cleveland Cavaliers. And, you know, the Boston-Miami series, well, Boston finally won now. So that's, that's a good series because they match up well with one another. But um, I don't think – the problem is nobody has the size to compete with the Lakers. No. Because Davis and James are just – they're just huge. Mm-hmm. You know, and then they got, like – McGee the Lakers and got Howard. Howard and McGee to like to pound Jokic, so he like has to go up, and then even Davis can guard him. So like they they have like three guys that can just pound that guy. And he uh, so I I you know he's a rad player and uh, you know and I I think him losing that body mass hurt his game too. I mean it's, he's probably healthier, but like like you said, if he's getting beat on the whole time, he doesn't have that yeah. body mass he had six months ago even. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, I would, I would be using that technique if I was the Lakers, just to, just to throw all those bodies out. You know, different, different defenders and different players. So, um, yeah. I didn't watch the game. I got to watch. I got to look at the box score to see, you know, what the final result was. But uh, yeah, it's exciting stuff. So let's go back. So you're originally from LA. Where did you go to high school? I went to high school uh, at Wilson High School, which is in the area that I grew up in, a neighborhood called El Sereno, which is a kind of a lower in, middle income neighborhood, predominantly Hispanic. Um, it was uh, it, it was cool to grow up in that area. It was I was kind of like a minority for, for the most part because most people, were, like I said, were Latin, and I was a white boy, and um, it was so it was a little bit rare for me to be amongst those people, even though um, most of my friends are Hispanic, even to this day. Um, but like I said, I was, I was, I was like a minority because I was a white guy. There was, there was a few white kids around, but most of the kids were Hispanic and there were some, some Asian kids, not too many. Um, but it was a great neighborhood to grow up in. And it was, you know, you learned a lot. It was, it was fairly tough, but not ridiculously tough, but um, like I said, it's, it was an area that you, you just kind of, you know, you learned a lot about life because it was, um, it wasn't some middle affluent neighborhood. Um, it was, it was 
tougher than that. So it was, it was cool to grow up in that in, in retrospect. And, um, you know, again, three of the four guys in Armour Saint that are, that are with me, you know, Gonzo and Phil, who are brothers, grew up maybe a quarter mile from me. And then Joey, who's, you know, still one of my best friends beyond the band. And he lives literally like one block and one block over. So, um, you know, we all grew up in that neighborhood. And then Dave Pritchard, who, who was in Armour Saint, passed away in the 80s, but grew in South Pass, South, South Pasadena, which was a, a neighborhood just adjacent to El Sereno. And that's, you know, again, South Pasadena, so South of Pasadena, which is a pretty known neighborhood. But, um, you know, that was, uh, <laughs> that when we met Dave, we went from the rough neighborhood to the middle class uh, affluent neighborhood. And, and I'm glad we did that. I, me and another guy changed high schools. Um, in the middle of our like, junior year, we just said, we're out of here. And, and we went to South Pass. We had some of these address that we used to, to get up into the school. Um, and then we, um, that's when we met Dave. So I think it was, a, it was important fate to do that in life. Um, and I think we were ready to, to do something differently and, you know, meet some new people. And then um, it was cool because like in our big circle of friends, we have a lot of friends from El Sereno and kid, people we grew up in and, some of my best friends still. And then there were some people from the South Pasadena area that we kind of merged these two, um, these two groups together, you know, South Pass was mostly white kids. Um, certainly El Sereno were mostly Latin kids. And, and there was a lot of friendships that kind of, um, they just, they got together and, and other bands started. There was a band called MX machine, which was a pro popular, band in our neighborhood in our area in the San Gabriel Valley they made a record Joey produced it um and you know guys were in it and that that were best friends of ours and they made some really they, they had a great debut record and had some really cool songs that were you know they were a little more of like a punk metal band but um and we would do shows together and um and so we it, it was cool how they just kind of, and like two of those guys were in El Sereno, from El Sereno, two guys were from South Pasadena and that band. So it, what we, what me and this other guy, and eventually Gonzo transfer schools too, what we did is we, we did literally kind of like mesh these two cities together and, and a bunch of friendships came out of it. So it was really, in retrospect, really a, a cool situation. So is that how music comes into your life just from your friends? Like I know a thing about you is, you know, everyone that grew up when we did, everyone was Kiss fans, but you weren't. You were into other things. Like, what were your influences? How does music come into your life? Well, I think the, the first person that introduced me to music in, in a way of wanting to play it was this guy named David Avila. He was my next door neighbor. He was one of my best friends. And um, and he was kind of adventurous when it came to learning and, about bands and, and discovering new music. He was a guy who turned me on to Queen. Uh, when I say me, also Gonzo and Joey. Um, you know, he, he turned us on to Thin Lizzy, all these bands, the, he turned us on to Angel, mm. uh, the, the band, the gods who opened for Angel. Columbus, uh, like Ohio. <laughs> yeah, there, there you machines. go. They were great. The gods of rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah dude. Great band. Yeah, it was super heavy. And, um, you know, uh, we discovered a lot of these groups together, and he was adventurous, and he put this band together and, for a talent show, and he asked me if I wanted to sing, and I had never sang, and I guess he just thought I had the singer kind of aura and he goes, you should do it. And Joey played guitar. And, um, so we had this talent show band that we played our first performance as, as musicians and uh, probably sounded terrible, but, <laughs> but it was fun. We played rock and roll from Zeppelin and 
feels like the first time from Foreigner, which is kind of a weird choice of song. Um, but I love Foreigner. I was going to say, if you go back, amazing. if you go back to that first Foreigner album, like War of the, uh, uh, the World and all that's, oh, uh, that's amazing. War of the World, yeah. I just bought that album not that long ago and been listening to it a lot. And um, there's some heavy songs on that record. Yeah, so. I Need You and mm-hmm. um, Star yeah, Rider, I think something. Really, Star Rider, yeah. And, um, you know, it's just a great album uh, and such a great singer. I had big influence on me as a singer, yeah. actually, Graham. So, um, yeah, you know, that's kind of got the ball rolling. And then, you know, Gonzo and Phil were playing at the same time, wanting to be in a band. And then that kind of morphed into the early kind of version of Armored Saint. And, um, and you know, it, it, the youth and, and, and all the experiences that we had with friends and discovering music and going to see shows, going to the Starwood in LA, which was in Hollywood, which is a legendary club, um, going to the Whiskey, um, you know, those clubs, there was a club out in Monrovia, which is near Pasadena called the Wood Sound. We used to go there all the time, see a lot of really great bands, saw Snow, um, it's called Quiet Riot. This is, you know, early to mid 80s, early 80s actually, even late 70s. And, um, you know, these bands that, that kind of got the L.A. scene going as far as rock goes. And, um, you know, kudos to Carlos Cavazzo and, hmm. um, you know, Rat, who, you know, we I remember seeing Rat when, you know, when J.K. Lee was in Rat. And uh, they were at the Troubadour, and they were great, you know. So, um, you know, these, everything just was a, it was a learning experience for myself and all my friends and going to shows finding out about music, being in Hollywood, um, discovering bands, going to Rocky Horror Picture Show uh, at the Tiffany Theater right there in Sunset. Um, it, you know, all of those things are just so inspiring. and just got everybody wanting to play music. And, it's, um, funny that you, did. it's funny that you mentioned Snow. We had Jimmy DeAnda on here last week who played drums in Oh uh, Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah and, yeah, and he mentioned Snow too. And like, that's a band that, there's a legend about this band, but people that weren't around LA at that point don't know anything about it, but they, they pretty much were the Kings, right? They were pretty big. They had Carlos Cavazzo and his brother, Tony, and they gave Quattro's as a drummer. Um, they were great. They were a great band. They just like a lot of bands in LA. Sometimes they just couldn't get to that next level, which was basically getting a deal. I mean, Claire Bryant struggled for a long time and, uh, to do that. And then, I mean, let's face it, you know, Randy left, and then Quiet Riot ended up getting the, the, the putting the record, their debut record out with Carlos and, um, you know, and was massive. So, um, you know, it's, it's going into the club scene and, and, and some of those bands struggled. Some of the bands got through, got out and made records and went on to do well. Some didn't. There was a band called Smile, who was a legendary L.A. band for is amazing. Um, and they, they kind of came out when Van Halen did. They were never able to get to that next level. There was a band called All A Cart. It was a three-piece band, kind of Southern Rocky. They were amazing. They didn't like quite, you know, break through to get to the major label deal. Um, it was hard. It was competitive, you know, and there wasn't indies really. It was kind of like Rad's first album was on an independent, um, you know, but uh, a Great White's, I think, first record was on uh, Enigma. Is that the first label, I think, was? You know, some bands, I think in the early 80s, that's when the indies kind of started happening and helping these bands 
take the first step to get to the next step, which is, of course, everybody aspired to get to having a major uh, record com- contract. But, um, you know, it, I think the bands before them didn't get didn't have those opportunities as much. Um, and then we you know, we did, you know, all, all, so like I said, not great white, you know, Armored Saint with Metal Blade. A lot of these bands, I mean, you know, had the chance to take the step and then the next step was the, to get a major deal. So for you guys, I mean, you you put out an EP together, right? You you get in that club scene, and you you do you play with bands like Rat? Do you do the Sunset Strip, or do you? Because you yeah, have, we play with all those bands. I okay. mean, we play with Wasp. We had a lot of shows with Wasp, Black and Blue. Uh, we play with Steeler, certainly uh, Rat and Great White. Um, you know, we the thing about Armored Saint, and I say this a lot when we talk about um, the, our history, is that you know we were so we. We were proud to be from L.A. We loved the L.A. scene, but we, we just didn't really model our sound after the L.A. sound that was kind of happening. We were yeah. a little heavier. We were a little more British influence. We were more into UFO, Judas Priest, uh, you know, Thin Lizzy. We took those kind of influences, and we, we wanted – we had the soulful style that we did have, and we still do, and we were real proud of it. But we weren't as um, – you know, that went on to – be more of the hair metal sound, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and I always say that you know, you know the, the problem with Charm was saying back in the day was we weren't a thrash band because that scene was happening, and then we weren't a hair band. We were kind of like, and we were neither, but yet we could play with both those bands and we could both those t- genres of bands, but we just really never kind of fit in, and so we didn't really benefit from being part of the movement, and that kind of was one of our areas of stumbling and probably worked against us but in the end to this day now we say we're just happy about the band we became because we kind of wanted to just do our thing and kind of create our own sound but to not really be part of either one of those movements was frustrating because a lot of the bands that were part of you know certainly of course the the thrash bands and anthrax and metallica megadeth and slayer i mean they were just they were catapulting and then you had you know the rats and you know, Great White and, um, you know, uh, Quiet Riot, you know, whatever. Those bands were, were just totally happening, too. And then eventually Poison, which is, again, very different from what we were doing. But, again, that scene was just huge. And um, we just, we, we weren't really part of it. So that was, that was a little area of discontent, you know, in retrospect. It's just far as not like it didn't help us. And, um you know, but that's the way the road goes. So. Yeah, and then the two music things of trivia that I really like to drop on people to just kind of blow their minds. One is that that um, Roy Orbison was only 52 when he died. That's amazing to me. Yeesh. Right? Because yeah. he seemed like he was 82, right. but he's 52. <laughs> right, right, right. And and that you, John Bush, were the guy who steps out of the Rolls Royce in the Huey Lewis in the News video, Heart of Rock and Roll. <laughs> that's no you, right? Way. I, that was me, yes. I um, we were on the same label as, as Huey. We were, our record was just coming out, and I think our A&R man at the time, Ron Farrow, was they were making the video, and he suggested me doing that part, and so uh, I did it. And, and, and it doesn't look like you, though. <laughs> right, well, I had a bunch of makeup on because they really wanted me to be like this 80s yeah. guy of the scene. And um, but I did have my whole outfit on that I used to wear on stage during that time. You had the outfit, uh, and you fun. you had the walk, which I call the Starsky strut. You walk right. like Starsky <laughs> from Starsky and Hutch. 
Right. Well, and also my wife will tell you that I, little, I walk a little bit like George Jefferson. <laughs> well, <laughs> all right. <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> so, so um, yeah. It's an amazing fact, Funny. though, because, you know, when you're a kid, yeah, you're like, oh, who's that guy? You try to figure it out. You know what right. I mean? It's John right. Bush. Yeah. You know, that was cool. It was fun to do that. Huey Lewis and those guys were really cool. And, and um, that was a great record by, by them, sports. It was a huge, I mean, massive record. And, um, you know, it was, it was cool. Huey Lewis actually, you know, has a connection with Thin with Lizzy. Thin Lizzy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's funny There's how uh, you know, the outstretched arms of all this stuff you know they just they somehow interlock some way yeah that was a cool thing about you always though john is like you you can appreciate the huey lewis i remember being on a bus with you somewhere and we were talking about hollow notes war babies album and stuff like that like it's not ah. just metal for you you know what i mean like and i think that shows well, in your voice because you have this really soulful voice yeah i mean it was really important to to, to listen to all those type of bands and we you know i talked to people lately about doing when doing interviews in conjunction with our record and you know we were when we were in the eighth grade and we would come home from junior high school we we'd go to somebody's house and we would put on kiss alive and then we would take kiss alive off and then we would put on earth wind and fire gratitude and you know so like we were just into as much into that record as we were as kiss because we just thought they were amazing. And um, I still think, you know, Earth and Fire is like their, their heyday in the 70s, is, to me, is still one of the greatest bands of all time. And, um, you know, and has a big inspiration. Of, I mean, I can't sing like Maurice White and Philip Bailey because those guys are just out of this world. But, you know, they always motivated me to, to just sing with that kind of soulful approach. And, um, and I just always loved that band. And, Commodores and you know stuff like that, and then you know bands like the OJ's and you know those bands, all these bands, cool '70s bands that that like were were black bands that you know had the Ohio players. You could appreciate that, and um, you know they were just cool bands. They you know that's the part I, I get bummed when I think about like black music today because you know hip hop took over and. It, it 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 kind of eliminated the need for a band because all he needed was a DJ and the you know the rapper and then there was no more band so and that was a yeah there's you know there's a movement there's certainly there's some cool bands there's a band called Black Pumas who I well, love that band only the singers black they're great amazing band and but they play you know cool soulful R and B type uh, modern music and um, you know there's groups out there that can do it um, there's a movement but for a long time there just wasn't bands like those bands you know earth and fire and and um you know ohio players and um just you know they were they were like funkadelic and they were like they were rock stars too in their own in, in their world you know they were and they were big and their images were big and so they, all that stuff had a big impact on us as far as um you know wanting to just play really cool image driven music and alice cooper Funkadelic, they they're just they're very similar in some in some weird way, you know, because it was big, it was just big stuff, and we loved all that stuff, and that has a big impact on us um, musically, and we want to make Armored Saint records, especially of late, uh, it kind of has that vibe of lots of instrumentation and um, a lot of different arrangements and vocals, a lot of background shows really pushed that, and um, it fits with our sound and it just kind of elevates it. Yeah, I, th I think we talk about it all the time where, you know, white music and, and specifically rock and roll and heavy metal, it just, once you start copying other white singers, you lose that. Like Rod Stewart and all those guys wanted to be Wilson Pickett or Otis Redding. 
and that really showed through. And now, you know, you get to a point where everyone's trying to copy Vince Neil based on his looks and the voice. And, <laughs> and there's just nothing there. You know what I mean? It's very vapid. And the decline of black music like that, I, I love hip hop and all that stuff. And I think there's such a huge place for it. But the decline of those funk bands and those vocalists and the R&B and the soulful singing, it, it not only hurt black music, it's really killed white rock and roll and heavy metal. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, 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 it is funny because, you know, let's face it, you can go back to the British movement in the 60s, you know, the Beatles and stuff, the animals. And, you know, I, I love um, uh, Eric Burden, and he did things with Warren. And, like, there was, again, there was still cross-colonization with groups and stuff that was happening. And, obviously, the Beatles, I mean, <laughs> look, Elvis stole from, from black artists, you know. and um, But at least it inspired them, you know, and, um, and it helped rock and roll and, um, you know, it certainly propelled rock and roll. Um, and, but that's, there's no denying all the influences that the, those those black artists had on the white artists, and always always have. You know, or it should have. You know, when I think of uh, all those singers, like you just mentioned, as well as you know Sam Cooke and Al Green, and um, you know, it's just, it's endless, all those things. I was into the Commodores, Lionel Richie, I mean, before he got a little too sappy, but he was awesome here. And just all this stuff really, you know, like I said, we, it was really important to us as, as music fans. To, we grew up on those things as much as we did in rock. And, you know, I love Bon Scott and I love Rob Halford and, you know, I love Maurice White, you know. So um, to me, they all are the same to me as far as things that they, motivated me and, and wanted me to kind of push myself to be as a singer. So jumping back, so you guys put out the EP on Metal Blade, like you talked about. How do you make that transformation or that jump to the major label? You went to Chrysler, so it was Ron Fair, correct? And Ron Fair was a big fan of ours. We met Ron in the studio when we were actually recording the, the first EP, which was our first uh, our recording session ever, and he was in there and he was talking to us about Steeler, saying that he was interested in Steeler and being the punk bravado punk kids that we were at 1819 we we're like oh screw them we're way better than them you know we, <laughs> we didn't just rap really but we you know we were just we, you were we were we were confident and so and he was like really you know he's almost taken aback and probably slightly insulted because he was interested in this band and we were dogging him sorry ron killed nothing personal we're just being <laughs> young punks but um uh but, you know, we had that kind of, like I said, that bravado, that certain kind of attitude, which you have to have. And um, and so he was like, well, get me this recording when it's done and I'll listen to it. And that kind of developed a relationship. And by then we had already agreed to putting, you know, we got the song on, on the first, uh, second Metal Massacre, Lesson We'll Learn. And that was our introduction to Metal Blade. And then Brian said, we want to do an EP. So then we did the EP. And, um, and then we were just rolling. You know, we... We, we were becoming really, really popular in the L.A. scene. And um, kudos to a lot of our friends because in the early days, you know, a lot of our buddies, they would just go to our shows and be really uh, rambunctious and exuberant. And everyone was into, you know, the English heavy metal scene. And we read about it in Kerrang! Sounds Magazine. So we try to model a certain little uh, group of friends and, and create like a scene like that in L.A. that was, you know, wasn't because it was in England, but we kind of modeled a, a scene after that, and it just started rolling and a domino effect. And you know, we people would come see us and go, "Wow, look at this band! It's pretty popular, and they have all these people going nuts." So then it would just domino effect, and it really helped us, uh, got us going. And 
Um, and, and the next thing you know, we were, we were like selling out the country club. We were, you know, selling out the Troubadour and, and uh, those were great times. You know, it was the eighties, 83, pretty much 83 was the, was when it really took a, took a hold and us becoming a big band in the LA scene. And, and then we signed a Christmas probably by the end of 83 because March Saint came out. Uh, we started recording it in 84 and it came out in the fall of 84. And that was our first full record on a major label. And then it's funny because Ron Fair went on to work with like Christina Aguilera and the Black Eyed Peas, Fergie, Pussycat Dolls. Like that's all him. Like he started with you guys yeah, and well, Steeler. I didn't know, I know. that. But, yeah. And dude, we just, we, a friend of ours, his name is Russell Sherrington. He's, he's, he's basically take, taking uh, the lead in, in doing this documentary on Armour Sane, like a lot of people are doing it, but he's really kind of made it happen. He's done a ton, conducted a lot of interviews, and he was just interviewing Ron Fair. And I just got an e- email from Ron Fair, uh, and, and he kind of, yeah, Joey forwarded to me and the band, and here we are kind of communicating with Ron Fair. And Ron Fair is like, Armour Sane forever, and like, he still loves the fact that that was his first signing ever was Armour Sane. And he did go on to be a big guy in the music industry. And, um, but he still loves, but I'm sure he never worked anything like a band like Armour. Well, he did make Slayer. a uh, Slayer record. Yeah. yeah, he did. So he did do some rock stuff, but you know, I don't think that became his forte. He got into pop and he always had really cool pop sensibilities and um, was a great musician himself, uh, pianist. And so I think he's always, to this day, still loves Armour Sane because, you know, we were his first band and we were like, where's Baby? So it's cool to have those relationships still all these years later. And of course that, you know, we can't forget talking about Brian Slagle and, and all the yeah. impact that he's had on our career. And, you know, we're back on Metal Blade and have been for years and Symbol Salvation was on Metal Blade. Even the years we were on Christmas, Brian was just a huge supporter of Armour Sane because he loved us. And, you know, we left him in a way because, that's what people kind of did, but, um, you know, he was like, go and, you know, we'll, we'll find a way to regroup. And we did. And now we've been on metal blade and it's just the ultimate family atmosphere for him saying, and the perfect place for us to be. And Brian is just, you know, even those couple of years where he wasn't doing us, uh, doing what with us business wise, he was always a supporter of us. And, and now he's always been to this day. And, I always say without Brian, there just really wouldn't be Armored Saint because we had the option I and mean, the luxury of of him putting records out. I mean, you know, people still need to fund it. It doesn't, you know, these days you could do it yourself, but I, as a guy in my 50s, that's the last thing I would want to ever try to attempt. And he he's allowed us to continue making records, and uh, we owe everything to him. Yeah, there's somewhere there should be a statue to Brian. I mean, I don't know him. It's, you know. <laughs> But he's done so much for this form of music. There's a there's a bunch of people, but Brian stands out among you know. There's local guys. There's a guy in Cleveland, Bill Peters, that's still doing it after all these years. But on the level that that Brian is doing it, there should be some sort of statue to him somewhere. Yeah, you're right. There should be actually, you know. And and Brian, you know, he just stayed true to his own trip and his own style, and um, and and had so many. I mean, come on, Metallica's first recording was Brian. Slayer's first recording was Brian. Rat's first recording was Brian. Like, you know, he was the guy. Then there was bands that didn't go on to do big, but still had a name, was Malice. And, like, hmm. um, it, you know, uh, so many artists that he had, that he introduced to, to, the, to the world. So, um, and it just always stayed the same guy. Like, always was the same dude. Love metal, black T-shirt, you know, just kind of, like, really no frills type of person, just, you know, just a straight-up dude. 
loved it, was passionate, was a fan. So, so you, yeah. So you put out the album, you put out March of the Saint, which is still to this day incredible, and produced by Michael James Jackson. You know, I know that's probably for Kiss fans, that's an exciting thing because he did Creatures of the Night, and I think he did Look It Up as well, and then he did right, you guys, yeah, right? Yep. Yep. So, so what goes on yeah, after I mean, that? that was what, go ahead. Yeah, don't no, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I was just gonna say. So the album comes out, and what's the tour that follows? Do you go on your first major tour? Do you go from the country club to arenas? Like, what's the? Then we did. Uh, we did the first tour we did was with Quiet Riot and White Snake. It was Quiet Riot's condition of condition critical and White Snake's first like major record release in the U.S. Because before that they had just mostly albums that came out in Europe, and um, and they were amazing. I mean, Coverdale every night with you know Cozy Powell and John Sykes and Neil Murray, which killer band um, playing you know uh, Slow and Easy and Slide It In, and mm-hmm. you know, they were great songs. And Quiet Riot was. Was was obviously the second album had a had a major lapse for them, unfortunately. But um, but they were still big enough to to go under playing arenas, and we played these places. I don't know, I don't think the attendance was great. No, um, but we still played Richville Coliseum, and I Cleveland saw that show, very good. Hall. <laughs> yeah, Cobo Hall, Mark Score Arena. Um, we played the Beacon Theater in L.A. I mean, New York. Um, so uh, you know, we played Terre Haute, Indiana, which is where Larry Bird played college basketball and I'm over there going, this is where Bert played college. Holy cow, now we're playing it. Yeah. Um, so it was a great run for us because we were 20, 21 years old guys and we, our first tour was playing arenas. I mean, we, that, that was probably not a good thing because it probably went down from there. And I, you know, <laughs> I was like, oh no, this might be as good as it gets. And, um, well, it's uh, funny but, because I saw you guys at the Richfield Coliseum in Cleveland. I went to see you guys and, you know, huge arena but not a lot of people there and then i next time i saw you was probably even three four months later and you're with wasp and metallica at the variety theater and that show just crushed i mean it was like it went from a a big arena to bands that couldn't fill an arena to a show that is legendary on the streets of cleveland to this day right and that and that tour is to this day I'm sorry, I'm, I'm relocating here because my phone is dying, so I'm oh, okay. going to a place in my house. I just don't want to lose you and lose the service, so hopefully tell me if, if I get shoddy. No, I got you. We won't keep you much longer. I just No, that's are, okay. Um, 25 years, yeah. we've never had these conversations. I, I don't know any of this stuff. <laughs> oh, I lost you. And, um, and that was too. I mean, that was, you know, that was the second tour we did on March of the Saint, and um, and then we went from doing arenas to doing these club shows. I don't even think we we all realized how cool it was going to be. I mean, we knew you know Metallica and Watts were were starting to really excel, and and we had our vibe the same. But um, but you know, it was to this day people still talk about that tour. That was a, a great. It was just a great club tour in 1985 and Light the Lightning and the first Wasp album and the first Mark Armour Sandbackers and. Um, and it was, it was great. And it was a great tour that uh, just everybody who was into like the metal at the point wanted to go to that show. So, um, and those shows were packed everywhere. As a matter of fact, we played three nights at the um, at Memorial, and you know, all three were sold out. And, and just they're still kind of infamous gigs that, that we that we played. Yeah, I'm. We're losing you, John, and I don't want to keep you, and, oh. and I don't want to, you know. I know you're there with your. Am I breaking up? Yeah, you're you're breaking up a little bit. So let's let's do this. We're gonna call. I really appreciate the time. You know how much love I have for you. And Keelan just stopped in. So say hi, Keelan. Hey, 
Hey. <laughs> um, you know what? When Ian Shipley's back in town, we're all going to go out to Nana's. Cool? That'd be great. I'm so sorry that um, and I, I flaked in the beginning of this. Can you hear me right now? Yeah, we got you, John. We got you. Okay. Um, I'm sorry about that, but I'm glad that we had this chat because this is probably the longest interview I've talked in since I've talked about a record. So um, I'm glad we were still able to talk, and um, thanks for having me, Ken. And let's do it again. Yeah, I'm, when the album comes I'll out. I'll happily do it. Let me just make sure that I don't flake about remembering. <laughs> well, well, let's do this. When when the album comes out, you come to the studio. We have a hoop, and then we can hoop it up and then talk about the new Armored Saint album. That's perfect. Let's do that. Let's be official, and I will come there. I, I love coming into the valley. Perfect. All right. Thank you, John. Uh, I love you. You know that. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, right. I love you too, man. All right. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>